I eventually got into very much the music of Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young. And in fact, David Crosby became a, a, one of my closest friends, as he still is. And you will be glad to know, Jack, that because I knew I was going to be talking to you today, and because I knew you were interested in the influence that the Beatles had on Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, I called David last night and I asked him directly what what the influence was. And David was very influenced by the Beatles in a million ways. Junctures from Liverpool, England. The Beatles have held this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. One, two, three. Hello, my name is Paul McCartney. This is Ringo Starr. This is John Lennon. I'm George Harris. Welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. Steve Silberman is an award-winning science writer whose articles have appeared in Wired, The New York Times, The New Yorker, The Boston Globe, and many other publications. He is the author of Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity, a widely praised bestseller in both the U.S. and the U.K. that was chosen as one of the best books of 2015 by The New York Times, The Independent, and many other publications. His TED Talk, The Forgotten History of Autism, has been viewed nearly two million times online. And Steve also won a gold record from the Recording Industry Association of America for co-producing The Grateful Dead's career-spanning box set, So Many Roads, which was Rolling Stone's box set of the year in 1999. His liner notes have been featured in CDs and DVDs by Crosby, Stills & Nash, The Jerry Garcia Band, and many other groups. And when he was younger, he was Allen Ginsberg's teaching assistant at Naropa University. I'd like to dedicate this episode to David Crosby, who was one of the most influential musicians in rock history and a very close friend of Steve's. To the surprise of the world, David passed away just two weeks after this podcast was recorded. One of the reasons I started this podcast was to ask great minds such as David's how the Beatles inspired his music. And thanks to our guest, Steve Silverman, and his recent phone call with David Crosby, that question is answered in today's episode. David will be sorely missed here on Earth. But as he once said, music is love. And David has left behind a legacy of music and love that will live on forever. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. How's it going? I am good, and I'm very honored to be here, Jack, uh, to talk about not just one of my favorite bands, but a band that has been teaching me how to think, really, for uh, for decades now. Well, I'm so excited to hear what you have to say, because I know you have so many good stories to tell. And I'd love to start at the beginning. So can you walk us through how you grew up and tell us what kind of music you listened to as a kid? Sure. I grew up, uh, my parents were urban school teachers, and they were uh, peace activists. Uh, I remember being taken on a march 
with my sister in her in her uh, cradle um, when we were in the early sixties. It was an it was an anti nuclear testing march. Um, so I was raised really in the radical left, uh, and so the music that my parents listened to at home was like Pete Seeger and, and stuff like that, uh, the Almanac Singers. Uh, so I grew up hearing like union songs and singing them with my parents. We shall overcome. And uh, very poignantly, I have to say, my mother uh, had me when she was very young. She had me when she was a teenager. I was kind of an accident. Uh, my parents came out of a, a film called The Barretts of Wimpole Street, about a, a street in London, actually. And um, uh, the drugstore was closed. So that <laughs> I was conceived at the Hotel Ithaca. So uh, my parents were, were kind of hip. Like, a lot of my friends' parents were, you know, sort of more like standard baby boomers or whatever. But my parents were, were more rebellious and, in particular, politically active. And uh, right around the same time that I was being introduced to the Beatles, my mother was running for Congress as an independent uh, candidate on a platform of total withdrawal from Vietnam. So I was kind of marinating in the culture, in the rebellious culture of the mid-60s, um, uh, and had been, you know, since I was born almost. And then, you know, I would, you know, I'd love to say like, oh, I first became, became aware of the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, but I didn't. <laughs> I'm too young. Uh, I, I, I first became aware of the Beatles, probably the first week of June in 1967, when Sgt. Pepper's was released, because a very interesting thing happened. Um, wherever, you know, my parents were always taking me to these, you know, dreary meetings with, you know, people, you know, these old communists smoking and <laughs> drinking coffee and stuff. But all of a sudden, this one week, every single apartment that we went to People were listening to Sgt. Pepper's. And when, you know, a side was over, they would just replay it or turn it over, turn over the LP or whatever. Everyone was, literally everyone was listening to it. It was the most uh, simultaneous experience that I'd had since the day that John F. Kennedy was shot and I was sent home from school, um, uh, you know, and all the adults in the world seemed to be crying. So, you know, years later, uh, an opposite thing happened, which is that this album came out and everybody was digging it, just everybody. It was like a, a quantum phase shift in people's mentality happened all at once. And, you know, now that I've um, gotten to know a little bit more about Beatles history, I know that, you know, things were happening like Cass Elliot of the Mamas and the Papas getting an early copy of Sgt. Pepper's, blasting it out her window in London, and everybody cheering. <laughs> so this was going on all over the world. And the thing about Sgt. Pepper's was that it was unlike any other music I'd ever heard in that part of what made it so appealing 
was that through George Leonard, their incredible visionary producer, they were able to use all these different traditional forms of entertainment and music making as instruments in the orchestra that the Beatles were creating. So you heard British Music Hall, you know, the equivalent of American Vaudeville. You heard, you know, a harp, you know, a harp on a track that none of the other, that none of the Beatles actually played on. They just sang, you know. And, um, and not only that, but at a time when the hippies, you know, I was starting to see the hippies, like my parents would take me to Central Park in New York City, and uh, I would see these naked people dancing in Bethesda Fountain. And I would think, when I grow up, I want to become that. (laughs) (laughs) So all these hippie and, you know, head shops were opening in Greenwich Village. The beatnik thing was kind of tired by then. Um, So, uh, you know, something new was happening. I remember Davy Jones of the Monkees, who I had a slight crush on, um, you know, opened a head shop in, in Greenwich Village and, so we used to make these pilgrimages to these stores that had black lights, day glow posters, and incense burning, you know. So it was really like a global cultural awakening that was summed up by the release of this incredible album that sounded like, it was in a way, it was like world music, you know. So you had Within You, Without You, which, by the way, you know, people say, you know, these sort of musos, as they say in Britain or Oh, yes, it was influenced by classical Indian music. Yeah, sure, but try to find classical Indian music that sounds like Within You, Without You. They were using the (laughs) instruments in their way, but they were taking them from all these different cultures so that what Sgt. Pepper's was was like a world music album, even though nobody ever thinks of it that way. Um, And, you know, later on, I got to know uh, some of the members of the Beat Generation who influenced the Beatles in that regard, uh, particularly Allen Ginsberg, whose uh, teaching assistant I eventually became. At first, I was just a teenage fanboy reading his poems. But um, so I will never forget that week that everybody was playing Sgt. Pepper's. That was my introduction to the Beatles. Wow. I mean, needless to say, I wish I could have experienced that moment myself. I mean, it seems like all of Western culture had this paradigm shift when that album was released. And and since that release was so culturally impactful, I'm wondering, did it have any influence on you and your career path? And if you could just briefly walk us through how you became a writer and how you found your way to where you are now. Sure. Um... I would say it goes deeper than that. It didn't, it didn't just influence my career. It influenced my, um, my, the core of my soul. <laughs> um, because the Beatles opened up internal landscapes of thought that would have been impossible to glimpse without their music to, to mirror it. And I remember, um, you know, eventually the White Album came out and I was very, very consciously listening to that really hard. Like I, you know, I, I bought it. I love the package. It was weird that there, you know, it was this white cover with a number printed on it. Uh, I, I worship the, um, Rich, it was Richard Avedon, I believe, portraits of the band, you know, psychedelicized, solarized portraits of the band, you know. And um, 
you know, they were cool. Uh, but I remember like hearing, you know, Revolution 9, which everybody was into hating, you know, even back then. But I loved it. I thought it was amazing. I thought it was like a, a dreamscape. Uh, and in fact, it's still really good. And in fact, um, it opened my mind up to, uh, you know, what I now know is like music concrete or using non-musical sounds as part of a musical score. Um, you know, I would later get into The Grateful Dead, very much so. That's sort of an understatement. I would eventually <laughs> produce their career-spanning box set, so many roads, co-produce their career-spanning box set, so many roads. But The Grateful Dead were also playing with the question of what is music and what is noise. And, you know, there was in their early concerts, they would start doing feedback intentionally to play with that edge of music and noise. And obviously that's what the Beatles were doing with Revolution 9. And um, it's not that I exactly enjoyed it. Um, it was nightmarish. You know, it was weird. It was haunting. But, it, you know, it kind of, as Walt, the poet Walt Whitman said, it itched at my ears until I understood it. <laughs> it uh, you know, it, it was like annoying in a really interesting and instructive way, you know. And, uh, and of course, you know, the White Album uh, continued the theme of using sounds from all different uh, cultures and, you know, even like prototypical reggae in Obladio uh, um, Oblada, or not reggae, but something like that, Caribbean rhythms. Um, so the Beatles were like my first taste of a lot of the sounds of lots of different cultures, but funneled through these, you know, guys from Liverpool. Um, and, and that was amazing. And then, um, you know, once I got to know Allen Ginsberg, Allen Ginsberg, the poet, he was the author of Howl and Kaddish. Howl is his most famous poem. It's the one that begins, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness. Um, the slightly better poem actually is called Kaddish, K-A-D-D-I-S-H. It's the Hebrew prayer for the dead. And he wrote it about his mother who had schizophrenia and who died in a mental asylum uh, after a lobotomy that teenage Alan had to sign for. So he was very guilty about that. Um, and Kaddish was a huge influence on my career because it was Alan's concern for people who had been ignored by society and marginalized, like gay people, drug addicts, people with mental illness, people with intellectual disability. Um, Kaddish was a plea uh, that society treat them in a more humane way, uh, and in particular through the lens of his mother, who was, uh, you know, very, very uh, disturbed uh, woman, but was also treated horribly. Um, and that became sort of the, that was one of the two works of art, the other being a book called Flowers for Algernon, uh, a novel about uh, by Daniel Keyes about a young man with intellectual disability who signs up for a brain-enhancing operation um, and then loses uh, his enhanced abilities. Those two things, Kaddish and Flowers for Algernon, became the emotional basis of my eventual uh, book that became a worldwide bestseller, 
neurotribes, the legacy of autism and the future of neurodiversity. And what I tried to do in neurotribes was very much in the spirit of what Alan had tried to do in Kaddish, which is to shine a light on people who had been ignored, stigmatized, marginalized, and thrown away by society. And in the same way that the Beatles were influenced by the Beat Generation, would you say that the Beats and Allen Ginsberg were also influenced by the Beatles? Hugely. Allen was hugely influenced by the Beatles. In fact, I would say that the Beatles were the manifest realization of various prophecies that Allen made as a poet. And um, there's an early poem uh, about seeing the Beatles, I believe, at Portland Coliseum. And it was not just their uh, gusto and sort of, um, you know, they sort of took charge of hipness in a way, but they also liberated uh, their audience um, to not just think new thoughts, but feel new feelings, which were then expressed by yelling, ah, you know, when the Beatles were on stage. And so Alan has in this very early poem, um, you know, this, the notion that the voices of the girls in the audience were like raising the roof of the Portland Coliseum, you know. And it turns out that uh, Alan was both influenced by the Beatles, very much impressed by them, but also had a huge effect on them uh, and inspired them through the person of Barry Miles, who owned the Indica Bookshop and um, helped organize the uh, the so-called Royal Albert Hall Poetry Incarnation uh, in 1967 that was, you know, some people say that that was the inauguration of Swinging London. It was actually a bit more specific than that in that Swinging London, like the Swinging London of the Avengers and whatnot, had been going on for a while. But what happened with the with the Royal Albert Hall reading, which had Burroughs and... Uh, uh, who, of course, appears on Sgt. Pepper's. Um, and in fact, it was Burroughs that was really the channel between the Beatles and the Beats um, because Barry, Barry Miles uh, was editing uh, magazines, literary magazines and books, as well as running the Indica Head Shop, where John would later meet Yoko, that's where that art show was, where John climbed a ladder and there was, you know, the word yes at the top of the ladder. And John was like, who did this? This is amazing. And that was Yoko. Um, so that was the Indica bookshop that Barry Miles owned. Barry Miles also, he, he, Barry Miles was basically the hippest guy in the hippest version of London that there ever was. Uh, Barry turned Paul McCartney onto hash brownies. Uh, which yielded innumerable uh, <laughs> benefits to the world. Uh, and also um, the, the most amazing thing, maybe, that Barry Miles did was when John Lennon came to the Indica Bookshop to find some Nietzsche, uh, who he was interested in at the time, um, Barry Miles gave him a copy of uh, Timothy Leary's uh, The Psychedelic Experience or whatever, which, you know, early on in the introduction, Leary says something like, turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. And so that became the basis of 
uh, Tomorrow Never Knows. And I will say, even though I was not aware of Tomorrow Never Knows when it came out, because I was, remember, I was at this young age, like, in 1967, I was nine for most of the year. Uh, and that was really the year that kind of everything changed all over the world, in that at the beginning of 1967, just for a few blocks from where I'm sitting now, there was something called the Human Being in Golden Gate Park. Uh, and the Grateful Dead played, and Allen Ginsberg danced to the Grateful Dead, and it was the first sort of mass gathering of hippies when people realized that they weren't just, you know, a bunch of communes in the Haight-Ashbury. They were a movement, you know, for better and worse, because the hype around that movement destroyed this neighborhood, more or less, as people came here from all over the world. But so that same year, um, there was this event in London called the Royal Albert Hall Poetry Incarnation um, that Barry Miles helped to organize. Burroughs read, Ginsburg very famously read, there are incredible pictures of him reading as a, you know, he, Allen Ginsberg once said, the only poetic voice that matters is the voice from the burning bush. And he looks like he's, you know, embodying the, the burning bush. And also a bunch of sort of mediocre British poets read. But uh, what happened was, um, at the Royal Albert Hall Poetry Incarnation, the counterculture in London realized that it was a, a movement. Just as at the BN, just a few months earlier, um, the San Francisco hippies realized that they were a global movement. And so young people were waking up. And, you know, Barry says, Barry Miles says in interviews that um, it was such a relief because London, sort of previous to that moment, um, or, you know, previous to the swinging London moment, had been this sort of dreary, bombed out, you know, oh my God, the ruins, the blitz, you know, all this. But then suddenly young people were happy and wanted to take drugs and have sex. And um, and uh, they they had a little money uh, to spend on not not so much money so they weren't buying you know yachts they were buying hip clothes you know, and and records by the Beatles and uh, so it was a sort of global cultural awakening happening and um, Barry Miles definitely facilitated a lot of interactions between the Beat Generation and the Beatles. And for for Alan especially, he was always looking for um, sort of insurgent groups of young people doing daring, you know, possibly unwise, but you know, <laughs> fascinating things like he and his beat friends had done in the in the forties and fifties. And in fact, uh, because I ended up getting to know Alan very well and becoming his uh, teaching assistant eventually at a place called Naropa Institute, he was always talking about how he was keeping his eye open for what he called a group of Beatles friends in poetry. So he was looking for a gang of, you know, really bright young people who sparked off each other and had a sense of community. And uh, so I mentioned earlier that... Um, 
mostly what I listened to before the Beatles really was folk music and, you know, occasionally a song on the radio would, would reach me or whatever. But um, I eventually got into very much the music of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Um, and in fact, David Crosby became a, a, one of my closest friends, as he still is. And you will be glad to know, Jack, that because I knew I was going to be talking to you today, and because I knew you were interested in the influence that the Beatles had on Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, I called David last night and I asked him directly what what the influence was. And David, yeah, and David was very influenced by the Beatles in a million ways. Um, in fact, there wouldn't have even been a David Crosby without the Beatles example. Uh, and one thing that I've talked to him about a lot is Eleanor Rigby, which had a huge effect on him because it was about... Uh, a layer of society that that people ignored, you know, these lonely old people. You know, you didn't if you listen to pop music and Elvis and you know Bo Diddley and all the stuff that the Beatles grew up loving. You know, um, it would believe me, it wasn't about old people drinking tea. You know, in in bed sits. It was about um, you know Johnny B. Good or whatever. And so the Beatles widened the area of consciousness in rock music in a million different ways. And one of those ways, which is really underappreciated, was that they they widened it enough to include lonely old people, uh, you know, sort of living out their lives. Um, and so Eleanor Rigby had that huge effect. But what David said last night was hilarious. Um, I asked him, you know, what the, what the, the real revelation of the Beatles was to him. And he said, well... I used to be a folk singer. I used to be like, as Woody Guthrie said, uh, then I, then we, meaning the birds, right? Because uh, that was his band. Um, then we went to see Hard Day's Night. It changed everything. When I came out of that theater, I was wrapping myself around the lampposts. And I said, we can be that loose they look like they're high. <laughs> so it immediately, um, you know, widened David's notion of what a rocks, how, you know, how in everybody's face and just thrilled to be alive uh, rock stars could be. And that became his role model for the birds. Wow. That is just so incredible to hear. Steve, thank you for reaching out and asking David Crosby himself about that, because that's something I've always wanted to ask him. And to hear his first-hand account of that is just so unbelievably cool. The influence of the Beatles on other bands is something that I've often wondered about because, like David said, it really seems like they came along and just breathed a breath of fresh air into the whole music and artistic scene back then. Very much so, and in lots of different ways. In, in you know, they inspired visual art, they inspired other bands, um, I mentioned earlier that I'm, you know, I'm, um, love the Grateful Dead. I saw them probably 300 times, uh, and co-produced their box set. Um, you know, they were playing Beatles covers towards the end. Like, you know, I remember, uh, going to see them at one of the last concerts by them that I saw and they, they did, um, uh, Pete Townsend song, Bob O'Reilly into Tomorrow Never Knows. And it was, you know, as soon as that, 
uh, even though it was being sung by my, probably my least favorite member of the Grateful Dead there ever was, this guy Vince Welnick, um, <laughs> when you could hear those keyboards come in, I got chills straight up and down my spine. You know, and I must say, uh, you know, I've been listening to the recent remix of Tomorrow Never Knows, the super deluxe mix. There is nothing like that track. It, 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 it raises the hair on the back of my neck. And what's interesting is that, you know, it was inspired by psychedelic ex experience. It was inspired by, uh, as I mentioned before, that line in the book by Timothy Leary uh, that describes, you know, what you should do when you start tripping. And as everybody who's ever taken LSD, I have, uh, as anybody who's ever taken LSD knows, the trip doesn't always start with like, oh, this is nice. You know, it's it's not like marijuana where it's generally benevolent, you know. The the come on of LSD is scary. You know, it's it's like an elevator going up into the quantum space or something, you know. And so it's like there's a there's always a few minutes at the beginning of an acid trip when you think, ah, is this going to be okay, you know? And the beginning of Tomorrow Never Knows does that to me every time. It gives me that feeling. And it's a, it's a feeling. It's not a thought. My whole body is shivering when I hear, you know, and Ringo with that drumbeat, OMG, you know? It's There's nothing like it. Um, and uh, so anyway, as, as time has gone on, I've really appreciated even more than I did when I was a kid, how adventurous and ambitious the Beatles were and how they were taking good stuff from every corner of this planet's musical universe and making it just an element in their own orchestral vision uh, and the vision of, of uh, their producer. And so uh, I'm still learning from the Beatles now. Um, and... I would say that their vision of being more compassionate to people who were ignored, like Eleanor Rigby, um, very much informs my day-to-day -day job now, which is writing about people who were ignored basically by the medical establishment. I'm a medical historian. So I wrote a book uh, called Neurotribes, A Legacy of Autism that became a, a bestseller. It's now in 25 languages. But I'm also now writing about uh, cystic fibrosis, which is uh, was a an inter a, a invariably terminal disease uh, when it was first discovered. But my best friend has cystic fibrosis. He was told uh, all the time that he was growing up that he was going to die by the time that he was twelve or the time he was twenty or whatever. But because of advances in care, he's alive, and his whole generation is now facing. Oh my God, we were told that we were going to die when we were young. We're still alive. You know, what, what, now we have to like face the big questions like starting families or, you know, what, am I saving for retirement? No, because I thought I was going to die. So my medical work as a historian is focused on noticing people who everybody else has decided to ignore, like Eleanor Rigby. And looking back on your entire career, do you have any favorite moments? I have a lot of favorite moments. Um, one of them was interviewing Allen Ginsberg in uh, the 1980s, I think. Um, 
and that he was he was <laughs> Ginsburg by that point was old and cranky, and it was actually a real challenge to get him to sit down for the interview. Uh, and you know, like uh, there were awkward calls, like me calling him and and you know him saying, "You woke me up," you know. <laughs> so by the time I was sitting down with Alan in, in his kitchen on the Lower East Side, um, and we had a conversation that was so good that he ended up at the end of the conversation asking me if I wanted to be his teaching assistant that summer. That was a huge moment for me because I went from feeling like this, you know, former student who was annoying him for asking for an interview to like, oh, wow, he wants me to be his teaching assistant. So so that was great. Um, another moment that's very special to me is when Jerry Garcia died, since I'd been such a, a hardcore deadhead for decades by that point, um, I wrote a, a sort of elegy for him called The Only Song of God, which you can find on Google if you Google The Only Song of God and Steve Silverman. Uh, in that essay, I feel like I captured a lot of very subtle things that only real hardcore deadheads would understand or resonate with. Um, and I didn't do it by just being a dopey fan. Uh, I did it by being influenced by, in fact, Zen sutras, uh, because I was, a, I was a Zen Buddhist when I was uh, a teenager. And I still meditate, actually. So, you know, if you look at my life, it's like, I meditate every day. I have, you know, Buddhas in the house. Uh, a lot of, you know, what ended up becoming my adult life was very much influenced by stuff that the Beatles and the Beat Generation introduced into Western culture. Uh, everything from psychedelics to to meditation to even though I didn't end up doing, uh, you know, what the Maharishi was doing in Rishikesh, um, I, I, I ended up doing somewhat simpler uh, Zen meditation. But in a way, the Beatles defined the boundaries of my life. In my whole life, in a certain way, uh, this music that I, you know, first heard when I was nine or whatever. Um, so I'm very, very thankful to them. And in a weird twist of fate, um, I mentioned that uh, I mentioned to you earlier when we were talking privately that my family moved to New Jersey rather than Massapequa, where you grew up. Well, uh, we moved to Edison, New Jersey, and one of my um, uh, classmates was John Chevelle, the brother of Nancy Chevelle, who is now married to Paul McCartney. No way. And so all I wow. can think, I, I actually had a crush on John. He was a real sweetheart. He's unfortunately no longer alive. But um, when I think about if, if in 1973, I had found Nancy in the hall of, you know, J.P. Stevens High School in Edison, and said, do you realize that someday you're going to marry a beetle? And not only a beetle, but the cute one? <laughs> you know? she, I'm sure she would have thought I was from Mars. You know, like yeah. <laughs> completely impossible and ridiculous. But it happened. And, you know, I feel like the Beatles' gift to all of us is being open to that sense of wonderfully surprising possibility. And that's what they put into their music, and that's what they gave to us. Oh, absolutely. 
And Steve, what's your favorite Beatles song and album? Hmm. Uh, I would say that Tomorrow Never Knows is probably the most awe-inspiring, and I say that you know, like, like real awe, like close, you know, close to terror. But you know, I love it. Um, I, I love a lot of their stuff. Um, it's hard to pick. I'm not a huge fan of the of the early records. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're good. But once they started to do their things with unusual instruments and unusual song structures and, you know, tape loops and everything. Oh, and I, I, by the way, Barry Miles, the guy who I mentioned before who owned the Indica bookstore and introduced John Dioko and all that, um, he was also part of the recording session for Tomorrow Never Knows. So he was one of the people who was looping, you know, literally strips of tape around pencils and whatnot to create Tomorrow Never Knows. Um, so, you know, uh, I like a lot of that. I would say that something that still blows my mind every single time I hear it is A Day in the Life. There is, you know, like Tomorrow Never Knows, there's nothing else of that magnitude in that in the whole world of pop music um that idea of having the orchestra climb their scale simultaneously so it's like this oncoming tsunami you know and also the the little song within the song of Paul's song within the song with the alarm clock um and also the the weariness in John's voice i read the news today oh boy it's it's almost a prescient weariness. Like one thing the Beatles didn't know in the 60s, thank God, was how crappy uh, the world would get you know, within you know a few decades. I mean, I don't have to tell anyone that, you know, the last few years with uh, the Republican Party in America, Trump, COVID, uh, I mean, it's terrible. I can't even go back to London anymore because I'm afraid of, of uh, co- getting COVID on the plane. Uh, it's a much darker time. I feel sorry for young people now, I have to say, trying to get through their 20s where they should be, you know, getting laid and having fun. <laughs> and it's, you know, so everybody has to be worried about, you know, COVID. But um, I do think that uh, a day in the life has in it both sadness and ecstasy that is unequaled by any other track in pop music. Um, and, uh, so I would say that's probably my favorite Beatles track. One final question for you, Steve. You've done so much to keep the legacy of the Grateful Dead alive through your writing and your co-production throughout your entire career. Why do you think it's important to hold on to bands such as the Grateful Dead and the Beatles and keep them alive in, like you said before, an increasingly dark world? Well, here's the thing, you know, In a way, I don't think that it's important to hold on to these bands. I think what's important is to hold on to the spirit that produced these bands, both the Beatles and the Grateful Dead, and that spirit of rebellion and being pissed off about things that, you know, are unjust and insisting on ecstasy and and, uh, creativity in the face of you know, what George Orwell called, you know, you want an image of the future? Imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Like one thing I've learned in the last few years of dark times 
is that fascism, actual fascism, is much closer to wherever you are than than uh, I thought in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s, and early 2000s. Um, and so uh, art is uh, the most one of the most important weapons that we have in the face of dehumanization and and autocracy and brutality. And the Beatles were above all delightful. You know, if you if a you know you play a four year old the Beatles, the four year old will start nodding her head. You know, and it's like. What kid doesn't like the Beatles, you know? And it's because the music is speaking to some native spark of joy in their heart um, that is in everyone. And so you don't really have to hold on to anything because that spark will transmit itself to uh, future generations sort of as long as the recordings still exist. And where can people find more information about you and your work? Um you can find me on Mastodon and Post. I'm also on Twitter, at Steve Silberman, S-T-E-V-E-S-I-L-B as in boy, E-R-M-A-N. But I'm becoming increasingly uncomfortable with the uh, pandering to uh, right-wingers that Elon Musk is doing on Twitter. So I've, I'm relocating myself to Mastodon and Post. I'm also on Facebook. Uh, I'm not that hard to find. I'm very Googleable. Steve, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much, Jack. I'm very, very honored to be on this podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. To find out more about Steve Silberman and his works, check out the links included in the podcast description. If you'd like to hear more episodes in the future, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and follow us at Beatles Earth on all social media. As always, I'll see you next week with a brand new episode. 